0: That song is very moving. It uh, really is. And the goal of the Christian life is the life of Christ—to be all that He is through all that He is—and we ever move forward to that, never reaching the goal completely, but that is the goal, nevertheless. And we will see that in our passage this morning that God, <clears throat> excuse me, puts people in our place in our life that helps us t- to move toward that goal. So. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we are grateful to you this morning that you control the events of world history. You are the God who is on the throne. Heaven is your throne, and the earth is your footstool. And all things are under your constant gaze and control. For that we are grateful for. If it were not so, you would not be worthy of the song that we have just sung or the song, Holy, 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 or the worship of the word and fellowship. But you are God who is great and mighty. You are eternal. You are, you are absolute. But we are grateful that you are personal too, and that you desired to reconcile us to yourself when we had gone astray. And we thank you for your love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is in his righteousness that we approach the throne of grace this morning. It is in his finished work. It is in his name and all that he is, his person, his teaching, his life, sinless, his sacrifice on our behalf and his resurrection from the dead that we come boldly and yet we also come humbly. For we recognize in this moment and we are struck with the fact that we have failed you at times. And we confess that to you this morning, asking that during this time of the ministry of the word of God, we might be further reconciled to you and that we might be whole and holy and that there would be free flow of fellowship between us and you and between one another when we come to the Lord's table at the end of this message. We give this time to you now in the name of Christ, our great God and our Savior. Amen. Our text this morning is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and uh, we're going to be reading verses 14 through 21. We're, we're finishing chapter 4, which is one quarter of the way through the book of 1 Corinthians. Can you I'm not making any promises, but we're just saying. Yeah, they're short chapters. <laughs> I don't think we'll get through the rest as quickly. But 1 Corinthians chapter 4, um, <clears throat> excuse me, chapter 14 through 21. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God might be complete and adequate adequate for everything. So would you stand and would you give attention to the reading of God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 through 21, the word of God. I do not write these things to shame you. But to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you did not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you be imitators of me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and the spirit of gentleness? And God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. This is Palm Sunday, and on Palm Sunday, we celebrate the fact that Jesus entered into Jerusalem as the King of Peace, came as the King of Peace, riding on the foal of a donkey, but Jesus will return a second time to rule with a rod of iron. That's what Palm Sunday is about, and we should have that on the screen. Excuse me. There we go. Yeah. So he enters Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey, and, and a donkey meant peace. And he came as a king of peace, and they cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna to the king on high. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He comes in peace. That's his first advent, but in Revelation it tells us that he will come back riding on a white steed. A sharp sword will come out from his mouth and he will slay the wicked. And he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. The word rod is the same word that we saw in our passage in our just reading where Paul says, Shall I come to you with a rod? or in peace. When Jesus came that first Sunday... Of uh, Holy Week, Luke tells us that he wept over the city. Did you know that that Jesus did not just weep in John 11 when when Lazarus died, but when he came into to Jerusalem, he came on Palm Sunday, looked at the city, it pff, caught him because he knew what was ahead. These were a rebellious people. He loved them, and yet he wept because he knew that they would reject him and. He knew that they would be destroyed. A.D. 70, the city would be torn down. We see similarities in our passages, passage this morning. Paul, just like Jesus who loved Jerusalem and his people, Paul loved his people, and he's distressed at their disobedience and their rebellion, and he's coming to visit them. He wants to come in peace, but he may have to use a rod if necessary because he knows as a loving father what is best for them. Now, we're finishing uh, chapter 4 this morning. and chapter 4, uh, Paul is landing the plane, if you, if you will, in terms of the first four chapters. And remember, the first four chapters are all about the factions and the infighting and the schisms and, and, and the worldly philosophies and the foolishness. And there's, there are cliques amongst them, and they are fighting with one another over who's the best teacher, and they're applying all these worldly principles to, to, the, to the kingdom of God, to the, to the church. And Paul has been rebuking them all throughout, saying, no, 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 this is not the way it's supposed to be. We are to be about the cross of Christ. And in this passage, Paul uses this, this imagery of the father and his children because he wants to convince them at the end that they should change their heart and change their actions, and he wants to do so lovingly as a father. And, of course, the the quintessential father of all is God the father. That's where the idea of fatherhood comes from. If you want to know what a father should be, you look at God. And Paul was a godly man in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Christ had chosen him and had commissioned him to be an apostle to the Gentiles and specifically to the church at Corinth. And Paul sought in all of his life to be that example of a loving father to them that they might emulate him, that they might emulate Christ. And so in this metaphor, this example of Paul being a father, what kind of a father was the Apostle Paul? What was he like? Well, we're going to see three things. What, was, what kind of a father was the Apostle Paul? First of all, he was a father whose life is worthy of emulation. A father whose life is worthy of emulation. Every father will be copied. Every father is an example. Every father will be emulated by his children, followed, mimicked in some way. But he was one who was worthy of following. Not everyone is worthy of copying in that regard. And he begins by saying, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Verse 14, he seeks to lovingly motivate them as his children to change their their attitude, their thinking and their conduct. He cares for them. He spent a year and a half teaching them. And as he writes this, he knows their faces. He sees their faces. He knows their voices. He knows their spouses. He knows their children. He knows their livelihoods. And he doesn't want to embarrass them or shame them into action. His desire is to motivate them properly toward correcting the attitudes and the the false thinking that they have and the factions that are part of the church. And he knows that just merely guilting them into change is no change at all. Father will spare his child pain when necessary, if he can. But sometimes fathers have to bring the pain as well. Ephesians 6.4, we're going to learn fathers a lot about us here today. Ephesians 6 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Don't provoke them to anger by, by uh, giving them rules without a relationship, as Josh McDowell says. I think it's, it's perfect. By, by just stepping on their toes and always being angry with them and, 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 and being legalistic with them. You want to discipline them And you want to instruct them in the Lord because you don't want them to fail. You want them to succeed. And Paul wants that as well. It is the responsibility of every father to discipline his children. And the word discipline can mean be in self-control, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, discipline your body to eat properly and to exercise and your mind to think properly. But discipline also in the sense of correction when wrong. And fathers are responsible to help your children do both of those things. Your children need both. They need to hear more than ever what is right and what is wrong. And they need to hear it from you, and you need to hear it from God first. Your children need to hear what is right and wrong in their thinking, in their behavior, in their words, words. because if you don't tell them, guess who will? The world. And they hear from the world all day long and in this current milieu that we see this this uh, kerfuffle going on in in our culture where children are being sexualized at every turn of our culture. Fathers, you need to bring purity. You need to teach them what is true and right. And by the way, fathers are a father is not a mother. And a mother is not a father any more than a man is a woman or a woman is a man. And so we retain that distinction between fatherhood and motherhood, too. And I understand that we have, we have single mothers, and that father may not figure may not be there. Men, step up, maybe mentoring those young boys. And I can think of several in our church that are the, their grandmothers or mothers are gallantly working to parent them. But they do need father figures in their lives. And Paul is seeking to motivate his children to change. And he says, I do not want to shame you. Because he just said to them these, these things like we saw last week. He was very, very sarcastic with them. Oh, well, you're so strong. Oh, you're so smart. One writer said he, he held a mirror to, up to them to show them what they were like and what he was like, and they should have blushed in the mirror. But Paul doesn't want to humiliate them. But you know what? He is going to shame them later on. He is going to shame them. In, in chapter 6, verse 5, he will say, I say this to your shame, the fact that they are not making the proper judgments in the, in the church. In 1122 in 1535 and in chapter five, verse two, that we're going to look at in a in a couple of weeks where he says there is an, an immoral man in your midst. And he says, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. In other words, they are shameless. That's where our culture is today. There is no shame. Shame is a bad word. Shame is not a bad word. It's like guilt. you know why you feel guilty sometimes? Because you're guilty. Do you know why you feel shame, which is a sense of humiliation over something that you've done wrong? Because you've done something wrong. And shame is a perfectly proper motivation to repentance and to faith and correction. And Paul will do that. But at this juncture, at this stage, as he's closing out this first argument about their arrogance... And their pride and their divisions and their infighting, he says, listen, I'm your dad. And I don't want to bring a spanking. But I do want you to be admonished and I want you to change as my loving children. He became their spiritual father through the new birth of the gospel because he says though you might have countless tutors in christ and by that he means there might be lots of people in for us too lots of people in your life as you go through life you have teachers and leaders and pastors who, who who might lead you along the way in 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 your walk of faith he says but you might you will not have many fathers in fact only one paul says me there's only one person, perhaps even in your life, that you look to as the spiritual father of your life, the person who brought you to Christ. Or maybe, maybe they didn't lead you to Christ, but they were that first influence in your life, and you look up to them as a spiritual father. And that's the case with Paul. Paul came and he preached the gospel in the synagogue. Some came to Christ. They got kicked out of the synagogue. And then he went to the Gentiles and many came to Christ. He knew these people and he begat them. When he says, I became your father, the word became as I begat you as a father. It's the same word that's used in in the the genealogies of Matthew 1, uh, Abraham begat. Uh, Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, um, begat, 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 became the father. He would say in Philemon 10, I appeal to you for my child Ones- Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. He led him to Christ. In other words, God used him. And there are those who have a special place in our lives, and they should. Have recognized Paul as this spiritual father, not only a spiritual authority as an apostle, but a spiritual father who, who loved them and was invested in them. We learn from this that the gospel is the only means of spiritual spiritual reproduction. The only means by which people come to Christ is through the gospel. He says, Through Christ Jesus I became your father, through the gospel. In Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Salvation is the work of the Lord. Salvation is God's work and he said earlier I planted, Apollos watered, but the Lord brought the increase. The message was delivered to them but God is the one who led them to himself. Salvation of the Lord is of the Lord and it is always God's work and it is never the work of any man. But he only uses people. We are the chosen means to bring people to Christ. So we need to be ready to do that. We need to be ready to be a a witness and to give a witness and to tell people about Jesus Christ. Because God uses people as agents of the gospel. He doesn't use miracles necessarily or writing in the sky or angels appearing. That is not his chosen method. He gave the gospel to us. He entrusted it to human beings, to the church, and it is our responsibility to be faithful with that and one person at a time give them the gospel of Christ and let God do the work. And now we come in verse 16 to the gravitational center of this passage where he urges them to emulate his life because he says in verse 16... Therefore I exhort you be imitators of me. How bold is that? How bold is that? He urges them to emulate his life to Imitate his life. I exhort you. This is the same formula that he, be, he began the book with, with in, in chapter 1, verse 10, where he said, now I exhort you. It's a, fame, uh, a favorite phrase of, Christ, of Paul. He uses it in Romans twelve one. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. He uses it here. I urge you. I exhort you. And he used it in, in 1, 10. I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. And he's bringing that whole argument to a close here with, "Therefore, I urge you to imitate me." How many of you, I, I how many of you tell other people to yeah, just just imitate me? Okay, I want you to be just like me. You might do it in some cases if you are a tennis coach, right? Say, don't, no, instead of, in fact, you, the, the best way is stop doing it that way. You go, here, let me show you a better way. You know, make sure you follow through, or if you're teaching basketball to follow through, whatever it may be, just do what I do. Watch what I do and do that. But tell you, I tell you what, for me to tell you, hey, I just want you to imitate my life. I, I, I don't do that, okay? <laughs> but Paul was bold to say this. Imitate me. The word imitate is the word mimetase. We get the word mimic from it. And he doesn't mean for them to ape his life because he always wore this special beanie and all the men in the church are wearing a beanie just like Paul. Or you grow a beard just like Caleb Klontz and you want to be just like Caleb Klontz and everybody has to have a beard. That's not what he's talking about. And he's going to say this in chapter Chapter 11, he says, he says it again. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. That's the ticket. In Ephesians 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Beloved children, that's what he just called them. I admonish you as beloved children, be imitators of God, be imitators of Christ, be imitators of Paul. And Paul had a clear conscience that that in this thing he was doing what was right and he wanted them to follow him as a loving father. For us, the answer, for us, the lesson is emulate the lives of those who are faithful in the gospel. Emulate those people. There's nothing wrong with that. Appreciate them. Thank God for them. Thank them personally, those people who have led you. Thank you, Mike and Diane. We need to thank people. Hebrews 13.7 says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, mimic, imitate their faith. Every time I read that verse, I think of Mike and Diane, because he was my spiritual father and mother. (laughs) Now we're peers. But you have someone in your life like that. I hope you do. And it's okay to imitate the faith of those who are faithful. It's okay to imitate the grace of those who are gracious. It's okay to imitate the love of those who are loving the patience of those who are patience, the joy of those who are joyful, the Christ likeness of those who are Christ like. It's OK to hold people up as an example in your life. Yes, they will probably let probably let you down at times. That's OK. They're not perfect and you're not perfect. But the scriptures tell us that we should do this and we can. There's a positive and a negative side to this. There are those who look back on, on their former mentors or their spiritual father and they say, thank God for that person. But I have met people, and I hope there are not some of you who like that in this room, who have gone through their life. They're early in their Christian life, they had a beloved pastor, they had a beloved church, and then they moved. And the rest of their life, they're trying to replicate that church and that pastor. And they go from church to church to church to church. Nobody ever measures up to Mike Powell or whomever, John MacArthur. And they, they stagnate in their growth. Recognize the grace of God if you have been in that situation and, and, and you're just always unsettled in the church and the pastor that you have. Just recognize you had a special time. You had a special fellowship. You had a special person in your life. And just move on and grow. That's what we need to do. Fathers, again, your examples to your children. You are an example. Not, I'm not telling you be a good example. You're an example for good or for bad, right? So I do exhort you that you need to be aware that your children are watching and that your children are emulating you. When, when, I, when our boys were small and I mowed the lawn, we had a little Fisher Price bubble mower, and they used to follow me all around. And kids will emulate their fathers, both good and bad. And that's always an ouch. When you hear from the mouth of your children, attitudes, or you see facial expressions, and you go, oh. Beware that your children will imitate you. If Christ is important to you, he will most likely be important to them. If worship is important to you, he will most likely be important, be important to them. If your wife is important to you, Chances are mom will be important to them. And I know it doesn't always happen, but you certainly have a better cho- chance of that happening because you will be following the Word of God. So, what kind of a father was the Apostle Paul? He was a father whose life was worthy of emulation. And secondly, he was a father who empowers faithful children. I hesitated to use the word empower here because it's been co-opted by you know, business and you, you hear it overused so much. But it is a perfectly good word, which means simply that he, Paul commissioned his faithful children to service. And we should do that the, the same way, both in our family but in the church. Fathers are to teach their children and fathers are to show their children how to do it. And then fathers need to let them do it on their own. And that's what happens in the church as well. He says in, um, in the next verse, in verse 17, For this reason I have sent to you, Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. For this reason. For what reason? That you might learn to imitate me, because this is important. And I've sent him to you because he is my beloved and faithful child. Now, he calls him his beloved and faithful child. And what did he just call the Corinthians? My beloved children. What did he leave out from the, the Corinthians? Faithfulness. They're not there. They're not faithful. They're not following his example as a father. They're not following his teaching. Timothy, on the other hand, is. They know Timothy. Timothy was with Paul in Corinth when Paul first came and he sent him back at this point to teach them to remember the, the this this very thing to help them do that which they're not doing. They are not being faithful. They are not being faithful. In fact, um, When you look back at verse 16, when he says, be imitators of me, that's the only imperative in this passage. Imitate me, become an imitator of me, because you're not. And I've sent Timothy to help you to be what you're not and to do what you're not doing. Faithful is the same word that we saw not too long ago in the same same chapter, verse 2, where where Paul said, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful faithful and here's a faithful man he is Timothy and I send him to you to help you to follow my example of a faithful man so we see this for us spiritual responsibility should be given to those who are faithful that is the discipleship process spiritual responsibility should be given to those who are faithful in other words we should give spiritual responsibility to spiritual children Those who are faithful are given more. And when people are young in the Lord, we give them responsibility. And if their faithfulness is proved, by faithfully discharging that duty, we give them a little more responsibility, and then a little more, and then a little more. And that's what Paul had done with Timothy. So that now he was a beloved and faithful child who was now teaching others. Paul had reproduced himself in the life of Timothy. So we have to give spiritual responsibility to people. And we've talked about uh, in the last couple of weeks how, uh, in the last month rather, we all have a place in the family. Everyone has a chore. Everyone has a responsibility. Everyone has an ability that's given by the Spirit. And it's important for everyone to find that place to learn faithfulness. Timothy did. And they needed to learn it as well. It's like when you have a child and you're you're teaching that child how how to walk. They have to learn to stand. Then they need to learn how to walk. And then they can learn how to run in time. The spiritual life is the same way. We start with spiritual infants, which Paul said they were. They need to learn how to walk in the Lord, in the way of Christ, so they can ultimately run. And we all know what happens when you're teaching a child how to walk. You, you, you let go of their hands and their head hits the coffee table, right? And you go out and you're afraid to go out in public because people are going to say, Oh, that, what kind of a parent are you <laughs> letting your child out with a goose egg on his head? And uh, But that happens. People get banged up spiritually when we give them responsibility sometimes they fall and they hurt themselves but we encourage them we admonish them to get up and to get on with it and that's what paul is doing and he's using timothy for that purpose second john 4 says this i have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth Every pastor knows that verse, and every pastor knows the joy of that verse. And every pastor knows the pain of that verse, too. Because the flip side is, when my children do not walk in the Lord, that is a painful thing. There is no greater joy than when we we see God's people walking in faith and growing and maturing and imitating Christ and following the mentors and the the disciples that are are given to them, but there is also no greater pain when they are not, in the same way that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. So Paul commissions Timothy to teach them these unchanging truths of Christ because he says, excuse me, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ. Just as I teach everywhere in every church, Timothy is going to come and remind them. This isn't anything new. They know the doctrine. They know the truth. They know the way that they're supposed to live. They're just not following it. And Timothy is going to come on as a as a corrective, and he's going to remind them of these things. And so when Paul says, I teach these things everywhere in every church, he's not singling them out and saying, you know, of all the churches, oh, Corinthians, I always have to come back to you and, uh, and, and teach you these things. He's saying, no, I... This, I'm being consistent in my teaching. Everywhere I go in every church, I teach the same thing in all the churches, and I'm being consistent because what I teach them everywhere is the unchanging way of the life of Christ, the life of Christ. Paul has more than doctrine in mind here because he had just given them an, uh, an example. I want you to follow my life. It would include doctrine, but they know what they need to know. And unfortunately, that's, uh, that's oftentimes the, where, the place that we are. We, <clears throat> it's not that we need more truth sometimes. It's we need to follow the truth that we have. And we need to be obedient to it. Paul, what, what, when he says, I want you to... Thank you. <clears throat> I want you to follow my... My my lead and I want you to follow the way I've been leading living, which is the way of Christ. He gave an example in the last passage where he said, I worked with my hands when I blessed. I was reviled. I had endurance when I when I was persecuted. He was a a peacemaker when he was slandered. He was gracious. He was humble. He was loving. He was hardworking. He was a peacemaker in all those things. In other words, that is the way of Christ. Oh, you think you're so high and mighty, but I've been following the the pattern of the life of Christ, which is suffering, and he suffered well, humbly, with perseverance, graciously, making peace with those who hated him best he could. And Timothy is to remind them of these things. The essence of teaching is often reminding and repetition, isn't it? That's a lesson for us. The essence of teaching is often reminding and repetition. And he says, Timothy is going to come to you and he will remind you of these things. He will bring them to mind because they have already been taught the way of Christ. They've already been taught how Christ, how Paul lives, which is the way of Christ. They were well taught, but they were living as though they were not even Christians. And Paul sent Timothy to remind them, hey, and, and some of them are going to go, oh, yeah, we've heard this all before. And sometimes, that's, sometimes you do that, too, on Sunday mornings. Oh, I know, I've heard this all before. But the essence of teaching is repetition, saying things over and over and over again until we live them out. That's why we do communion every Sunday. We do this as often as we do it, to remember, to remember, to remember, lest we forget And we remind you and we exhort you and the Lord week after week after week, the simple basic things, love God, love one another, read your Bibles, pray, worship, love your families, work hard in life, be gracious, be forgiving, be a peacemaker. And we hear it over and over and over again and we will continue to tell you and admonish you to do those things because that's the essence of teaching. The goal of it all, the goal of the Christian life is the life of Christ. The goal of the Christian life is the life of Christ. It is to be like him. It's not to be like Paul. It's not to be like Ben Orchard or one of the other elders or some big-name pastor or theologian. The goal of the Christian life is the life of Christ. We need doctrine. We need teaching in order to get there. But we need change. We need to be imitators of faithful people. We need to have our lives transformed by the gospel and not just, just know the elements of the gospel. We always teach to life change. It's amazing then that when Paul says, become imitators of me, his conscience is clear that he himself is imitating Christ. And he's calling them to do the same. So what kind of a father was the Apostle Paul? He was a father whose life was worthy of emulation. He was a father who empowers faithful children to continue in ministry. And third, he is a father who corrects according to God's authority. When a father corrects, what is the standard? What is the truth? What is the authority that a father has? What is the measure? By what authority do you, fathers, correct your children? It is God given. And that same authority and power is God given in the church as well. Pardon me. So, meanwhile, back at the ranch. Paul says in verse 18, Now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Paul's used this word arrogance numerous times and the thread will be followed throughout the rest of the book of 1 uh, Corinthians. It means to be puffed up, to be filled with one's self. It's a word for pride, and the Corinthians were, were filled up with this self importance about them about the worldly philosophies that they had adopted, and they had taken their father for granted. And they had even developed a contempt for their spiritual father. They had arrogantly rejected Paul's apostolic authority. And he says, Some have become arrogant, so I'm, I were not coming to you. Just like, well, just like your kids, and just like my kids, um, uh, just like me, just like you, you probably went through a stage where you outgrew your dad. He didn't know anything. You knew everything, and you told him that you knew everything. It just seems to happen, doesn't it? And then sometimes, it depends on whether it's between 18 and 22. Some learn it later on. All of a sudden, your dad gets smart. Your mom knows everything, and you've come back, and you appreciate them. And children go through those those phases. <clears throat> And the Corinthians are in a stage that I would call, and I borrowed the term from someone in this room, adolescent arrogance. They're still immature. And in their adolescence, they have this arrogance toward Paul. What does he know? We outgrew him. Sure, with fun, while the fun lasted. But he's an old man. He's small and crooked and... Speech is contemptible. We have others that are tall and strong and young and better speakers. They're much more worthy of following. And when the father's away, children think they can get away with bad behavior. Your kids ever do that? We hear stories with our kids sometimes, you know, they're grown. You did what when we were gone? But mom's always, you just wait till your father gets home, right? And that's the idea here. Paul is saying, dad's coming back. And those who are arrogant better be careful. Because he says, but I will come to you soon. I am coming. He's made a plan. If the Lord wills. If it's God's will. Paul is modeling something here with that short little phrase. That he is in dependence upon the sovereign plan of God. He is trusting his father. And he's modeling that for them. He wants them to follow him as a spiritual father, but he, father, he follows his own father. Rejection of God's authority is arrogance. Rejection of God's authority is arrogance. Paul did not. We should not. The Corinthians should not have. Arrogance runs all the way through the book. And you know what? It runs in the family here. It runs in every family. That arrogance that takes God for granted as our father. And we have a natural bent toward rebellion. But the only antidote is humility and faith and obedience. It's the only way that we can get around that. And he uses his, himself as this example of living under the providence of God. James 4.13 says this, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then, then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, the same phrase that Paul used, If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that, and then James, who knew, must have known Paul, said this, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. When we seek to live independent of God, that's an evil thing. A couple of weeks ago at Nix, our speaker told us about living under the providence of God, recognizing because he's sovereign, he He is over all the things in our life. So the lesson for us is to consciously live under the authority of God's presence and under the authority of God's providence. We should always be aware that we are living under the watchful gaze of our Father. His face is always in front of us. He's always watching. He's always leading. He is always manipulating in a proper sense all of the things that happen in our life, he is orchestrating for our good and for his glory. He is lovingly guiding us. And so we must it's important before you go out the go out the door in the morning and when you get up in the morning to consciously and humbly submit to that truth in your life that God is providentially leading your life. And submission and, and that's the life of faith. Walking by faith, living eternally, we should hold our daily plans loosely. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. You can make all the plans in the world, but in the end, we need to hold them loosely, recognizing God may intervene. It happens, doesn't it? Sometimes with a twist, sometimes with a smile. Sometimes it's tragic, but we have all these plans. We have all of our ducks lined up, and God goes, I got something else. I've got something else. But we should consciously live under the authority of God's providence. Paul goes on to say in verses 19 and 20, he said, I will come. When I come, I will see, I will find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power, he said. And Paul's authority as a a father comes from the kingdom of God, from the power of God himself. The words of the arrogant are just that, words, meaningless, empty. This is the first time Paul mentions the kingdom of God. And I think he mentions it uh, here uh, at this particular juncture, as he's bringing that first argument to a close, because God's kingdom is obviously not of this world, and the Corinthians had placed their bets in the world, and they were living like the world. The arrogance in in, in Corinth, the arrogant people, they were living in the power of the world rather than the power of the kingdom, and Paul says there is no power in the world. It's only death. Paul has consistently, so far as we have seen in these four chapters, compared the power of the world to the power of the cross, the power of the gospel, the power of Christ, and now he says the power of the kingdom. Which will you choose? He's bringing it all to a close. They're actually fighting against the kingdom of God. And for us, we learn that the power of God's kingdom is our only power unto righteousness. The only way we can be righteous is through the power of the world, the power of God's kingdom, rather. The power of God's kingdom is the only power that we have to live lives of change that are transformed. This is our only hope. It comes only through him. It is the power of the cross It is the power of the gospel. It is the power of Christ himself. It is the power of the kingdom. It is the power of the spirit. He has referred to all of these. In contrast to the mere words of the arrogant, powerless, empty, temporary. See, the gospel doesn't just tell people how to live. It gives them the power to live that way. You have the power to live the way the gospel tells us. The last thing we see in verse 21 is that Paul will correct as appropriate to their reaction. And he says this. So what do you wish? What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? He he comes back to the father image here. Even though he said he didn't want to shame them, He's saying, if I need to, I will. What do you want? It's very interesting because the word, what do you wish, is the same word where he says, I am coming to you if the Lord wills. And now he says, What's your will? It's the same word. What do you will? As God's beloved children, we must accept God's loving correction. As God's lo- beloved children, we must accept God's loving correction. And when you walk with, with God, he will correct you. But the more you walk with him, his desires will become your desires. His will be- will become your will. His wishes will become your wishes. Because you become so more much like his son that you match the will and the wishes and the desires of Christ because he was the perfect son. He was the one who did the will of the Father. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, I want you to do God's will. Revelation 3.19, those, Jesus speaking, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Repent. Maybe you need to repent this morning. Maybe there's sin in your life. Maybe you haven't known Christ. Maybe this is the moment. But he loves his children and he will discipline us. Sometimes like a loving father, but sometimes we need a spanking. The first words out of the mouth of Jesus listed in Mark's gospel are these. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the good news that Christ came and lived and taught and he lived a, a sinless life and he died on the cross for your sins and he rose from the dead. That is the gospel of the kingdom of God. Repent. Turn from your sin and turn to him and depend upon him in faith and in the words of Jesus. And we pray, Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want his will to be our will. Remember, Jesus wept over the re- rebellion of Jerusalem. He came and he saw the city and he weeps. Paul was distressed with his wayward children. Jesus came in peace, but he will come with a rod. And Paul would also use discipline appropriate to its need. Sometimes with a child, just gentle correction is necessary. Sometimes, sometimes you have to take him to the woodshed, as God does with us. So as we partake of the Lord's table, and I want you to get your cup ready. Holy week is upon us, and in it is the rhythm of the gospel. We live out the gospel from day to day, week by week, year to year. And I want you to look at Hebrews 12:2, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame because he took it for us. And he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This week I exhort you to follow Christ. I exhort you to follow him through the week. Read one of the Gospels of the the Holy Week. Perhaps fast. Perhaps spend extra time in prayer less Netflix, less things of the world, maybe none of those things, but focus on the sufferings of Christ and join us on Friday night that we might really drill down and look at all that he was despised for us, the shame, our shame that he took upon himself that we might become his beloved children. And such we are through his death and his resurrection. Father, we thank you for this bread and this cup which reminds us of who we are in Christ because it reminds us of the life of Christ and all he has done for us. We partake of this this morning as brothers and sisters in Christ. And for those who are just believing, may this be their first taste of the cup and bread as a beloved and faithful child in you. And we say these and do these things until Christ comes, riding on a white horse. In his name, amen. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And God's people said. And God's people stood up. And God's people sing.